Welcome to a brand new episode of Reliability It Matters. Almost 20 ep- episodes ago, my today's guest and I did a podcast talking about statistics for reliability engineers and it received a great number of listens. My guest for today's episode also recently spoke at mainstream conference in Melbourne and presented on what makes a great reliability engineer, practical knowledge or theoretical knowledge. Now, this particular presentation drew the most number of people across the two days and there were some amazing insights shared on what makes a good reliability engineer. Now, my personal bias lies towards theoretical knowledge. And with these two things in mind, I wanted to expand on the first episode that we did and delve into the depth and breadth of statistics necessary to become a good reliability engineer. Now, with that being said, I would like to welcome Luke back to the podcast. So for our new listeners, Luke is a director at KPMG in the engineering and asset management division and currently leads the asset intelligence capability. Now, what makes Luke an expert in the field of reliability engineering is his 16 years of service in the Australian Army, having applied principles of reliability engineering throughout the entire life cycle of assets. He also has a master's in reliability engineering from the University of Maryland. Welcome back to the podcast, Luke. Have I missed out on anything? Thanks, actually. Great to be back here. Uh, well, obviously, I've been out of the Defence Force for a few years now, so there was a bit of uh, career after that point, but uh, I think you've, you've summed it up well. Perfect. I also wanted to mention one more thing before we get into uh, today's episode is uh, you and John Seaman, your fellow uh, co-presenter for that particular topic, were awarded the best presenters among 50 other presenters. So that is an amazing feat, and I would like to congratulate you for that. Thank you. I, I was... I was just going to say, I was just writing on John's coattails. So, um, you know, a, a tip for, for new beginners, if, if someone uh, won the best presenter last year, co-present with them the year afterwards. <laughs> he did win uh, the best presenter last year as well. So He did. He's an, yes. he, he's an amazing presenter. But now the focus is on you. So <laughs> <laughs> during the presentation, people had different ideas on what makes a good reliability engineer. Things such as, reliability-centered maintenance, regression analysis, change management, reliability testing, and many other aspects were mentioned. Now, I wanted to know your biased view. And here, what do you think makes a good reliability engineer? Uh, I think it's a really difficult question because it's a very broad profession. And uh, I guess that's the reason why we undertook that that presentation the way that we did it. so, you know, ostensibly, John was arguing for the the practical experience and I was arguing for the the theoretical. But um, I think the truth of the matter is that none of us believe that, that one of those is um, or, or takes primacy really is. Uh, I think um, my summary of it was that um, practice without theory is uh, dangerous and theory without practice is useless. So, you know, it's kind of a competition between either being um, dangerous or, or useless. And I guess in that regard, I'd, I'd prefer to be um, useless. <laughs> but, um, you know, e- either way, the, the point is, is that a good balance between a theoretical knowledge to make sure you're doing the right thing and then a, a practical application experience to make sure that you can actually make that happen in the real world is is obviously the, the key part. Um, in terms of you know what are the what are the skill sets? What are the discrete skill sets that a reliability engineer needs? Again, I think you know it's a really difficult one to to answer because, I guess, in my view, if we talk about what is the spectrum of a reliability engineer, um, I probably go as far to the left to say you know we start at somewhere like a a maintenance 
engineer and you know perhaps we extend to a maintenance manager or to a tradesperson who's actually undertaking those tasks they will do some aspects of reliability and maintenance engineering um, through to you know the, the the hardcore maintenance engineer who's there undertaking rcas rcms etc to the reliability engineer who's you know probably contributing to those rcas and rcms but potentially doing you know a lot of analysis and rework and if they're in a design space might be undertaking design for reliability type activities and then if we continue going kind of along that scale, at some stage, we'll probably hit the strategic asset manager who's looking after a portfolio and really optimizing the delivery of capability of those assets against a um, organizational objective. And, and quite often, you know, there, there is reliability engineering tasks or, or people with formal or practical experience and, and qualifications in reliability engineering who are a part of that entire chain. Now, if I was to sort of take a step back and look at the very simple definition of what reliability is, uh, the, I think the first word that does come in, it is defined as the probability. And the moment you start talking about probability, you would start immediately thinking about statistics. So in that regard, I agree with you to an extent that, yes, you you do need to have a really good understanding of how things function, how things fail, what's the practical application of reliability engineering. But if you wanted to quantify that, aspect of statistics does come in. And if you don't have a good understanding of what you're calculating, I mean, yes, you can throw out means and averages, but again, that brings back to the original problem of uh, of exponential distribution, uh, dare I say, uh, MDBF. Uh, and those kind of metrics start being thrown around in the industry a lot. So how do you, do you see that breaking, uh, or suppose of the chain breaking from looking at very simplistic approach of reliability engineering to a bit more appropriate language when you want to frame a problem? A hard one to answer, I think. Um... I guess I don't need to have an in-depth understanding of statistics to increase my probability of winning the lotto. I just, you know, go and buy another ticket and, and I've, you know, probably doubled my, my well, I haven't doubled, but I've increased my probability of, of you know, winning the lotto. Um, and, and so from that point of view, to improve reliability, I don't necessarily, or sorry, to, to um, increase the probability of having a functional asset within its context, I probably don't need to know statistics, um, but I do need to know what, um, I guess, imposes change upon that. Um, so hopefully that's an apt metaphor. But, you know, to that point, I guess, um, undertaking uh, something like an RCM in accordance with good principles and, and doing it correctly, um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that as an open statement that I don't think it's always done correctly. Um, but if you're undertaking those principles, you're still impacting, you know, the, the probability of failure. Um, and so, you know, again, I don't think you need to have a basis in statistics to understand these things. But I think I said on on your podcast last time that, you know, again, if we if we kind of dive into, well, you know, what are the basis of a lot of the tools and techniques that we use? Um, and we, we talk about RCM, the failure patterns are based upon statistics. And, and so, again, I think, you know, statistics is abound. It, it surrounds us in the world. And, and maybe that just shows that I, I like statistics a lot. But the, you know, the, the point is, is that, um, Regardless, there is still in the physics of failure that we're looking at a statistical basis for how we undertake RCM. So I agree with you that, you know, at, at some level, 
um, reliability engineers have to understand statistics. I think there are a lot of reliability engineers who do nothing else but statistics. And, and a lot of the work that I do in reliability engineering is undertaking, you know, probability-based outcomes, doing modeling, doing simulation and things like that. Um, and, and so that's a lot of my work. But again, I, I don't think it's something that is is necessarily required as long as people understand what their limitations are and appropriately apply their knowledge within the bounds of, of how they are a reliability engineer. All right. So the, you're saying that your knowledge or your the level of exposure and knowledge that you need to have of statistics is perhaps determined by what phase of the assets lifecycle are you working in, perhaps? So for instance, if you're in the operations and maintenance, you probably don't need so much um, information of, stat of knowledge of statistics. Whereas if you're in the design of a component or uh, the conceptual design of a component, yes, maybe if you're designing or testing, then yes, you need a far more uh, thorough deeper understanding of statistics because how do you design a reliability test? How do you perform the reliability growth assessment? I suppose that's where my, my question lies. How do you start improving those aspects? So if you don't have a really good uh, background knowledge of statistics, then are you a good reliability engineer in that case? I feel like you really want me to argue for statistics and I'm not doing that for you. Um <laughs> I, I don't know if it's specific to what phase of life it's in. So I guess the um, to, to draw on some of your examples, I think, you know, if you're in operations and maintenance, I think you said that you, you probably need less statistics. I think that's what you said. Yes, um, not as much, I suppose. Well, and, and see, so, you know, again, this is probably where I'd argue to truly understand what is the performance of our systems and to dive in and understand what is the, the underlying issues which need to be addressed. I think statistics is useful. Again, you could undertake an RCA and identify, you know, those things that are having the biggest impact upon um, your, your fleet availability or, or, you know, you could do a simple Pareto chart. That's a form of statistics, I suppose, and that's still going to help you um, to identify what you need to do. Certainly, if you're in the test environment, um, you can contribute to a test environment without knowing statistics. But if you're the person who's designing or doing the design of experiment, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you cannot get away with um, not knowing statistics there. Um, if you're involved in the design phases, you know, perhaps you're um, doing reliability block diagrams. Um, and maybe you just know how to do reliability block diagrams. Um, and, and that's fine. There's not necessarily a whole lot of statistics involved in that if you know you know which boxes to put the numbers in i think the important thing then is to understand where the assumptions that underpin a reliability block diagram are relevant and how applicable the results of doing that actually are in the real world so i guess the the level at which an rbd is accurate for a complex system um, where not everything fails randomly as we've probably molded it with an RBD, which is quite often, you know, simplified down to exponential distributions everywhere. Um, then, then yes, you know, the the importance of understanding the limitations of the statistics or the the simplifications that are being applied is important. But do you need to know a depth of statistics to be able to undertake an RBD? I'll ask you that question. I think I would answer that question by saying it depends on what the expected outcomes are. So if you wanted to simulate or if you are trying to uh, identify what the availability of a system is then perhaps you may need to know 
a bit more depending on the complexity of the system. But perhaps if it's a very simple system, it's just a couple of blocks, doesn't have a lot of logic. There's not a lot of redundancy. There's just simple series of RBDs. Not so much. As you said, it's it's knowing what boxes to use. But it's I think that's where have that logical understanding of how is the system going to function or how is the system expected to function when certain failures happen? Is there redundancy? Is there no redundancy? What happens in that case? Maybe maybe then there's a different uh, uh, flavor to it. So, and, and you know, you've answered the question for yourself now is that the way that you answered my question was to say, well, it depends and then give me a whole bunch of limitations <laughs> that are dependent upon the way that you're applying the statistics, right? So, yeah. you know, the, the way that you've answered the question shows that, well, I need to know enough about the statistics so I understand the limitations of the assessment that I'm, I'm doing. And, and I think, you know... Uh, I think I said the same thing last time. I think it's important to understand, you know, the limitations around the things that you do, which probably means that you need a little bit more than you actually need, um, which is an odd way of saying it. But, um, you know, to understand those limitations, work within those bounds. And then when you're stepping outside that or where you need that additional resolution to understand where that point of handoff is and, and you know, potentially where you need support or, or potentially where you need to open another book. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm happy with that answer now. Um, no, 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 in the, in the previous, you in the previous episode that we we dis, we had, we discussed the different distributions and their applications on what is the most appropriate application for the different distributions. Uh, and I've uh, after that I did different I did podcasts on some of the specific distributions such as the viable, the Poisson, and the binomial distribution. However, there is one topic which we did not get to talk about much and. Even when I was being introduced to the field of reliability engineering, I really had had no clue what the distinction between uh, the analysis was. Now, I'm, I'm referring to repairable systems and non-repairable systems. And why is it that we have to analyze them separately? And, and what difference does it make? Why can't I apply a viable distribution to everything? What are your thoughts on that? Well... <laughs> I mean, without even going into the, the uh, into the, the repairable systems, you shouldn't apply a wild distribution to everything. Should be the the distribution that fits the best. Um, but uh, to to answer your question directly, um, the I guess the 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 non-repairable analysis makes an assumption that you know you have an underlying static distributions. That's not to say that everything fails at the same time, but that the distribution which underlies the failure um, from which the failure time is generated if you're Monte Carlo minded um, is the same. And, and so I have a component and it fails and I get rid of it and I get a new one. And that new component is, you know, in, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, I, let's just say for all intents and purposes, I'll leave it there and, and not try to describe that further. Um, the same as the last one. And and so the distribution which um, defines its failure characteristics is the same as the last one. So, you know, each time it fails, I have, um, you know, an identical and independent distribution which is underlying that failure. Um, now, when we're talking about a repairable system, you know, the questions just sort of explode. And, and I, you know, you obviously gave me pre-warning that you wanted to talk about this. And I, I tried to work out a way to describe this simply. And I think it's it's very hard to because it's a very complex conversation. Um, you know, with a with a um a non-repairable 
component. You know, it's it's fairly simple in terms of, of you know what what your treatment is, how you're going to deal with it, um, and you know the the mathematics is is quite simple behind it. But if we're talking about a repairable component or a repairable system, then then lots of other things come into play. So um, you would have heard terms like good as new, um, mm -hmm. and so you know, if I replace a component, then, you know, and, and that system only has one component because it is the component, then it's as good as new when you replace it. So, um, you know, if I if I have a car with a, a, a broken, I don't know, the, the belt snaps maybe, um, and I replace the belt, is the car as good as new? Um, and, and the answer is clearly no, the belt mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Um, but, but what does that mean from the system point of view? So, you know, we have to have better ways of modeling than just saying, well, I've done a repair, therefore the system is as good as new um, because the rest of that system is aging. And if we're talking about like a, a structural component, I might repair it with, um, you know, doing a weld. Um, in, in that case, you know, that part of that component, obviously, and, and that component or that system, which is that structural member is, is, no longer or is, is not as good as new it's it's probably the same as old so it's probably got the same probability of failure as immediately before it actually had that catastrophic failure um and you know to to extend upon that metaphor if if that steel member uh generates a, a huge fatigue crack and i go and put sticky tape over it um it's a repair but it's probably worse than old right so i haven't brought it back to how it was prior to the um, failure i've i've repaired it but but it's certainly not um you know better than it was before it immediately had the last failure and so if we talk about that then you know we have to go down this this pathway of well how many different ways can we talk about a repair um altering the reliability characteristics of a, a system or, or a component or, or however you want to talk about it and so then we'll go through there and we'll go, well, there's things that are, are, are good as new or we can assume that they're, you know, close to as good as new when we um, undertake it. So, you know, that's that's the obvious one. If we, um, you know, just applied the wild distribution everywhere is, is really what we'd be undertaking. Um, uh, sorry, that's not correct. Um, if we applied the exponential distribution everywhere, that, that's what we would get. Um, we could also make an assumption that it's um, the same as old, so a non-homogenous Poisson process. Um, and, and what that means is if we, we did this from a viable distribution, then it would we would keep the same old age that we, we had previously and it would continue on down that, that pathway. Um, and so obviously you'd see lots of failures kind of starting yeah. to stack up. Um, the, uh, the, the rest of those then is, you know, all of the things kind of in between. So better than old, but, but worse than new. Um, so a general renewal process where I have improved it, it's better than it was just before failure, but it's not as good as a new thing. So, you know, maybe, uh, um, the structural repair that I was talking about is probably more like that. It's better than it was before, immediately before it failed. Um, but still, there's, you know, all of these fatigue and stress still exist in the rest of that member and you haven't done anything about that. Um, or, you know, if, if we're talking about a vehicle, maybe I've replaced the gearbox. So it's, it's you know, significantly better because I put a new gearbox in. However, all of the rest of the components are still pre-aged. So from a system point of view, it's better than old, but but it's not, uh, you know, as good as new. Um as I said before, there's there's that example of the the worse than old, so the sticky tape over the crack. Um, it's it's not as good as it was before failure, and it's you know it's definitely uh, worse than it was before. 
Um, and then there's this the other one, which which doesn't often get talked about, um, is is actually better than new. Um, so you know, if we're talking about repairing again, if I use a vehicle example, um, what what if I've um, gotten a better gearbox, um, hmm. or or what if I replace it with a, a better the the belt that snapped with a better belt than what it was previously? So that system is actually better, or, or might be better. Um, and again, I want to constrain that, that conversation, but let's just pretend that it might be better because I've replaced a significant amount of that asset with something that was better than the new condition. So maybe that entire system now is better than it originally was when it rolled off the line. And so, you know, before we even start talking about, um, you know, why is it different um, and, and, and what are the maths, you know, I've just given you, um, you know, five different ways that a repair could be approximated or, or applied to a system or to component and each of those um, you know there's overlap between them but but most of them represent um, or, or can be represented by their own series of mathematical equations okay I think that makes sense to an extent uh, some of that I was uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think unless I actually sit down and, and look at the mathematics or the, the equations behind this um, I think I, I would definitely need to do that but when you speak of, um, of some of the repairable systems and how we analyze them, uh, would I be right in saying things such as the mean cumulative function or the rate of occurrence of failure? Are these the things that you would be looking at doing in order to understand the state of the system? Is, is that your go-to approach? Yeah, absolutely. So um, creating the, the mean cumulative failure plot and applying a model. Um, so, you know, there's two standard models for, for that application, which is a, a log linear model, which is um, called the Cox-Lewis and a parallel model, which is the Crow-Amza. Um, they're, they're two models that you could apply. Again, you know, I think we've done it before, actually, where we've we've just plotted, you know, cumulative failure number against time, um, against accrued time. And, and, you know, you get a very definitive concave, convex, or, or straight kind of a line. And, and those two models then are just applying a parametric um, equation to those lines so you can define them. And that just helps you then to understand, well, you know, we've, we've got this system um, and it's failing over time and then it gets repaired, but, but is it getting worse over time? Is it getting better over time or is it staying about static? Um, and, and again, it's, you know, it's a, it's a fact of, um, th there's this interesting thing where, the time between failures um, can be uh, exponentially modeled or with an exponential distribution. They might be random in between. Um, but so from a from a constant failure rate point of view, they're constant, but then that constant failure rate can change over time. So as the system gets old, the constant failure rate associated with the exponential distribution is actually kind of changing. And that's what you're then modeling with those other models. And that, that was a, a pretty crude way to explain it, to be honest with you. But you know, <laughs> the thing that's important is not what is the underlying failure distribution in between each failure. It's it's how they accumulate over time and what's that change in the, the pattern. Okay, so that now makes a bit more sense on, on why why is it necessary to look at repairable and non-repairable systems? But moving on to my, my last question. Now, you've just described a whole bunch of statistics and you've been saying that statistics is not so important or the, the, the level of statistics. I think you've just gone into really in-depth uh, uh, knowledge. You've drawn, on, drawn that out based on your experience. But moving on, I'm happy to hear your view on this. As the world is evolving, 
it's almost expected that a reliability engineer uh, is not just expected to do the RCAs, the RCMs, but with the amount of data that's coming through from all the sensors, IoT, everything that's going on. Is the, do you think that there's a trend where a reliability engineer in the future would also be expected to have uh, machine learning uh, skills or, or uh, data analytical skills developed to such a high level where they're able to create uh, machine learning models, algorithms? Do you think, is that where we will eventually get to? Um, I, I think so. I think, um, I mean, so, you know, within my training as a reliability engineer, certainly we did um, a lot of work on um, different machine learning models. So, you know, everything from looking at, uh, let's say, you know, particle filtering um, as an MCMC method for doing degradation analysis um, through to, uh, you know, different types of anomaly detection and um, uh, supervised and unsupervised learning methods um, for, um, you know, condition-based maintenance um, and, and other condition monitoring type outcomes. So I think, you know, the, the way that the industry is moving, absolutely, yes. I think that that will continue to be one of the areas that they grow. And and I guess one of the, the reasons why we did the presentation at Mainstream that we chose to do was was actually because the, the state of reliability engineering and asset management as it was released um, was, you know, including a, a couple of... Uh, I guess implications that that there was a lot of statistics that were involved in the reliability engineering training that was available, and and perhaps that that wasn't a, a great thing. Um, I think there's there's going to be an ongoing and increasing trend in bringing them into to every course, right? Because that's the reality is that people want to learn about machine learning these days. So universities as business organizations are certainly going to push there and, and they obviously have you know great uses within the field of reliability engineering as well. Um, I guess the only thing that, that I would say is that um, I think it's, it's a good outcome. I think reliability engineering people and, and uh, you know, contributors being able to undertake that work is a, a positive thing, as long as it's not at the behest of understanding, you know, the, the principles of physics of failure and the more practical tools that are required for a reliability engineer. Now, I just want to do sort of gauge an understanding of where the industry is heading or where do you think the industry is heading and what can future reliability engineers do to stay up to date or well, just the way chat gpt is functioning i wouldn't be surprised if just the your, your proper reliability engineers the way they are today they eventually do become redundant because their skills are you'd have almost everything be be through chat gpt i imagine uh to a, to a large extent but i think that makes sense that is something for me to um take a note of as well that I need to brush up and learn a bit more on machine learning. I, I, I hate that idea. <laughs> I think like, I mean, any any profession hates the idea of being taken over from chat GPT. Um, but, you know, the what, why do we get humans involved and why do we do facilitation of RCMs? It's because drawing out the information around the, you know, the operational context, the objectives, the environment that it operates in, you know, that's that's a skill set which is really important and is a human skill set, not a machine skill set. So um, I think that's that's the important part. When I say that the balance needs to exist is that if we don't have an understanding of the, the basic principles behind reliability engineering, we won't be able to use those tools very well. Um, and, and so we'll apply them and we'll get answers and those answers won't be particularly good. 
Um, but we'll probably apply them anyway because we won't understand any better. <laughs> uh, no, I, I thought you would say that, but thank you so much, Luke. Thank you so much for all of your insights. It um, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you on reliability and the statistics. I think I th hopefully the listeners will, will would have gotten a bit more idea on what do they need to know, uh, depending on what outcome they want to achieve. How much more statistics should they be knowing? But do you have any final, uh, I guess, of knowledge that you would like to impart to any new reliability engineer? Um, no, just keep learning. Just keep learning. Yes, that, that is the most important thing. And I think earlier when we were having chat, you said uh, that is the one thing that you can continue doing is to continually, continuously learn and improve yourself. Um, thank you so much, Luke. It has been, again, an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate your time. I hope we can um, speak on this topic once again. I'm sure there is a lot more to, to discover and explain. Thanks, mate. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful you day, too. Luke. See you, mate. Bye. <laughs>